1: Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For every program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. For today's program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jason Ananda Josephson about his new book, The Invention of Religion in Japan, which came out in 2012 from University of Chicago Press. In 1853, the Japanese were required to consider what the word religion meant when Western powers compelled the Tokugawa government to ensure freedom of religion to Christian missionaries. The challenge this request posed was based on the fact that prior to the 19th century, the Japanese language had no parallel terminology for the category of religion. In this wonderful new book, The Invention of Religion in Japan, Josephson delineates a genealogy of the Japanese construction of the category of religion, which was catalyzed by this political encounter between East and West. Josephson argues that, opposed to the common notion that religion is an ethnographic or academic creation, that we can place religion through diplomatic and legal discourses that invent or manufacture an identifiable, yet elastic, category. Prior to this political demand, contact between different Japanese and Western social groups were discussed in bilateral descriptions of orthodoxy and heresy, either from a Christian or Buddhist perspective. Added to this developing understanding of terminology were the influences of Western science, local negotiation of practices, and the rise of nationalism. The Japanese depiction of Shinto poses the greatest challenge to customary notions of religion because it is described as a national or political science that is markedly non-religious. Overall, Josephson demonstrates that in the defining of legal and social categories, there was a trinary creation of religion, superstition, and the secular. In our conversation, we discuss theocentric and hierocentric definitions of religion, the role of the demonic, heresy, varieties of Shinto, theories of secularization, civilizing projects, personal interior belief versus external behavior, and the institutional confirmation of these beliefs in legal contexts. Without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. Uh, i 'm your host Christian Peterson, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Jason Ananda Josephson about his wonderful new book The Invention of Religion in Japan welcome how are you i 'm good how are you doing christian i 'm doing good thanks for for making the time um, and I appreciate you sending me your your great book i really really enjoyed it and I think you've you 've added a lot to the conversations going on in religious studies so I'm looking oh, thanks forward to yeah that 's generous you. thank you yeah <laughs> um, before we get into um, some of the details of the books, I was hoping you could uh, just give us a little bit about your background how you got interested in the study of religion and the study of Japan
0: people that might have been influential in your in your development um okay I, I guess the story really starts several generations ago but um my grandmother was a famous anthropologist who in basically went native at a late point in her life um, and uh, uh, she's the one that kind of set up my interest in the study of religion. Uh, she, her name uh, is uh, Felicitas Gutmann, and uh, she's been depicted in things like uh, the uh, um, Exorcism of Emily Rose and a German movie called Rekviem. Um And so she was this sort of anthropologist of religion, working on uh, concepts of... Uh, Uh, Sort of cross-cultural studies of glossolalia, speaking in tongues, um, and the demonic. And uh, so I grew up and then she eventually became a kind of neo-shamanic figure in her later life. So I grew up with that as like the distant progenitor. um, And both of my parents uh, are Buddhists. Um, and so I grew up with both this sort of shamanic grandma and two Buddhist parents, uh, and then a large, richly diverse, religiously diverse, uh, broader family, including, um, you know, Jewish family members, Catholic family members, uh, one uh, aunt who's Muslim. And so that's kind of, you know, but from so very intense in that sense, very diverse religious family. And uh, I grew up in particular Buddhist and always having to explain that Buddhism to different people, like from maybe... Uh, elementary school on the playground, I remember kids coming up to me and asking me, well, what is Buddhism? Or what do Buddhists think about uh, abortion or something? And then I would just give them a blank look. And eventually I had to come up with answers to that. So um, that's the way it kind of started with me. And the sect that my family belongs to is Japanese Sotoshu Buddhism. Um, And so that's one of the Japanese Zen schools. And when I uh, started off doing Buddhism, Um, I started off practicing it and wanting to be a monk for quite a long time, and I did uh, monastic practice uh, before I got into it as a scholarly pursuit. So uh, that's sort of my background, uh, in a way, kind of an uh, American-raised Buddhist, uh, deeply engaged with Japanese Buddhism, and always trying to figure out the differences between American Buddhism and then the Buddhism I encountered uh, in Japan. So... Uh, yeah, I guess that's probably a little long-winded answer, but there you go. No, that's great. And then so how how did you kind of get into the academic study of religion then? Uh, as an undergraduate, I did a double major in film and in religion. And already at that time, I was uh, interested in kind of the intersection of philosophy and history. And uh, there didn't seem to be any way to do that except through religion department. Um, and so then I kind of went from undergrad onto a master's program where – with the sense that I wanted to do religious studies, but I didn't yet know what religion or what geographic area to focus on. Um, and in my master's program um, at Harvard, I, was, uh, I started working with Helen Hardacre, um, who was phenomenal and very encouraging. And given that I had been doing Japanese uh, since high school, I had a, a leg up in that language. Um, and given my family's history, you know, and given that I um, already had this connection to Japanese Buddhism, it just seemed like that was the right subject to focus on. Uh, but for me, also, it was partially a case study. I mean, I was really trying to figure out uh, the ins and outs of this concept, of religion, and wh- what its relevance was for the modern era. Why? Uh, despite people predicting the death of God or the departure of religion, why did it already seem to be so percolating uh, through the culture and, um, and so many vibrant things happening? Uh, and then I, and so I was kind of interested in the problems of religion and modernization, and that uh, kind of reinforced or drew me to Japan, which – you know, has undergone its own profound modernization process, but in many ways different than the Euro American model. Uh, but it was really at, at, um, in my master's program at Harvard that I really decided that it was going to be Japanese religion. Before that, I thought, you know, it could have been anything early Christianity or it could have been uh, Greco Roman paganism or polytheism I was really interested in. Uh, but having Japanese already as a language and French already as a language, uh, it just seemed. My, you know, I might as well work with my strengths and then develop some of my other language skills. So,
1: yeah, it's interesting to hear about your background because all of these seemingly intersected uh, influences come out in the book and, and the way you present this. So, it's really interesting to hear these stories about people. Um, how? So, how did you? Uh, you you talk about it a little in the book. If you, maybe you could describe how you kind of came up with this specific uh, subject for your book.
0: Yeah, so um, I won a fellowship to go to Oxford for a year while I was in graduate school, and I was at St. Anthony's College, and that year was the year I was you know, doing um, some tutorial work, but basically trying to come up with a dissertation topic, and my first thought was to do a dissertation on a famous Buddhist modernizer by the name of a Inoue Enrio, um, who – is famous both for modernizing Buddhism and for um, kind of disenchanting the Japanese Buddhist world. Uh, and he developed this nickname of Dr. Monster. And he seemed a very sort of fascinating kind of uh, 19th century ghostbuster and Buddhist uh, priest kind of figure. And um, so I was originally going to do a dissertation on him, but uh, I was sort of surfing around or wandering around in the uh, Bodleian, Japanese Bodleian library, and looking for. Uh, material on that period, um, the 19th century Meiji Buddhism. And one of the things that struck me is in one of his important books, uh, Enrio argues again and again that... Buddhism is a religion. I mean, he has to make that claim, and he has to make it uh, forcefully in a bunch of different ways. And he tries to nuance that claim and work through that claim. But it struck me that if anybody really had to argue that Buddhism was a religion, there must be people out there who thought that Buddhism wasn't a religion. And that got me really interested in this question about what Japanese intellectuals in the period thought of religion. What, what, did they, what was their category? Or what was the terminology they were using. And the more I studied it, the more the rich diversity of possibilities uh, for what might count as religion or what religion might be uh, kind of came to the fore, uh, including a range of different possible translations for the English term with a huge weltering possibility of kind of meanings um, that, that were kind of potentials that religion could have meant. And that, Made me write what was originally going to be the background chapter to a dissertation in Inoue Enrio, and that just turned into my whole book. And Inoue Enrio kind of actually basically doesn't make it into the book, uh, even though I had already part of that dissertation written um, when I kind of got sidetracked. So well, that's the way that <laughs> I'm goes. I'm glad you got sidetracked. Um,
1: so there's really a ton going on in this book that we could address. Um, maybe before we kind of get into some of these details. Uh, we could talk about this idea of, of defining religion. And you, you just, uh, separate into uh, there, there's uh, theocentric and hyocentric
0: definitions of religion. Maybe you could talk about uh, these ideas. Okay. So, w- one of the things I got deeply and profoundly concerned with was what was the concept of religion um, in Japan? And then, by extension, what was the concept of religion in the minds of Europeans when they first came to Japan? Um, obviously the average european intellectual in say the 19th century wasn't reading uh the definitions of, of friedrich max muller or uh, or his uh or uh the the rich scholarship that was coming out of religious studies but they had a concept of what religion was and this sort of drew me to dictionaries which are an interesting place to look for language and admittedly they're fairly conservative in regard to language shift but i noticed a uh, attention uh, in dictionaries um basically uh between kind of two ways of thinking about religion, um, the older concept of religion that you find in dictionaries and you, you find it all the way back in, uh, the encyclopedia, um, in in the um, 18th century, is the idea of religion as being centered around God. Basically, a religion is supposed to be each society's way of worshiping God. Sometimes that would become God or gods, but basically it was focused in and around the assumption that behind everything was a Christian deity, even if that Christian deity's, uh, even if Polytheism or paganism had gotten in the way of understanding that Christian deity. And that definition of religion is the one that you find uh, in dictionaries all the way up into the 1960s. So basically, from the birth of the European dictionary, uh, all the way up through the 1960s, people tended to think of this religion in theocentric terms. I mean, this category of religion... Uh, as they understood it, is clearly very Christian in its, in its textures and in its foundational assumptions. But then, starting in the 1960s, there's a significant shift, one that I call the shift from the uh, theocentric concept of religion to the hierocentric concept of religion, um, in which basically people started defining religion in terms of vaguer substitute words for God. So instead of saying uh, beliefs uh, and practices directed toward God, they say beliefs and practices directed toward the sacred or beliefs and practices directed toward the transcendent or beliefs and practices directed toward uh, matters of um, infinite concern uh, and a lot of this language is just barely disguised theocentric language. Um, what you kind of see is that different dictionaries, and I, I kind of surveyed a range of European languages, uh, Portuguese dictionaries, Spanish, German, French, or, you know, what have you. And what, what they're often doing, and you can see it very, very concretely, is basically like literally just switching the word. One word out for God. And the word that they're using in place of God is something like the sacred, something much vaguer, Um, but which I can argue also is just as uh, sort of Christocentric in its own ways, or at least has that, is just merely a legacy of Christian language uh, built into it. So, and I see those two definitions of religion at play and in the present moment to some degree uh, and definitely at play historically so when Perry and company in, in uh, arrive in Japan in the mid 19th century what they were looking for was Japanese versions of ways to worship God yeah yeah and
1: uh, you, you do this well how this uh, both both sides of the coin right from a, the Japanese perspective, how it kind of deconstructs this theocentric idea of what religion is. You do that well.
0: Um, No, I mean, I'll follow up on that. I mean, that's a good point, and I guess I want to make that to the listening audience uh, in case – Uh, they don't get to read the book, but I think one of the reasons for this shift between the from the theocentric to the hierocentric definition is because of the inclusion of basically non-Judeo-Christian or non-Abrahamic religions into the category of religion, which puts a pressure on it to shift its focus from a monotheistic deity onto something else and in the process, really uh, I think in many ways leads to the breakdown of the category and makes it increasingly less intelligible, and I think the Japanese intellectuals are part of that shift, have an important role to play in those shifting uh, definitions of religion yeah but anyway i'm sorry you were going to ask something else yeah no i'm i'm convinced jj from uh, after reading <laughs> this, so
1: thanks um the the other thing is there's a there there is a fairly well-developed uh tradition of uh scholarship on inventing or manufacturing or discovering or finding religion in these various places <laughs> um i'm wondering where you see your book fitting in that literature and uh, you, you, you talk also about that you're not necessarily the first to look at the Japanese case. So ha- how has that other work uh, – h- how have you developed on that other work and how, how has that work been received?
0: Maybe you could fit your book into that broader scholar. Sure. So I think in the first case, um, since basically 1962 with uh, Wilfred Cantwell Smith's The Meaning and End of Religion, uh, there has been a sustained critique of the concept of religion and its utility for the discipline of religious studies. Um, basically, uh, scholars again and again have noted the way that religion functions as a hegemonic category. And there's been, um, you know, as a kind of a way for Europeans to assert a kind of supremacy over other parts of the world. And there's been work, you know, uh, significant work on this by uh, people from like Jacques Derrida or uh, Jay-Z Smith or Tomoko Masazawa, um, Russell McCutcheon. A-, a bunch of folks have traced out the contours of the way in which European intellectuals have asserted or invented or constructed religion. That's kind of the first move. And then a second wave of, of thinkers under the influence of Edward Said's Orientalism have begun to look at the way that European thinkers construct Asian religions. We might think of Philip Allman's book, The British Discovery of Buddhism, uh, but there have been similar books on, you know, manufacturing Confucianism uh, or the British imagination of Hinduism, what have you. Um, the thing, the common intellectual presuppositions or the common intellectual terrain about all of these books is that religion is a European category that's asserted as a kind of dominance. And I think one of the, one of the things that's insightful about this approach is that it calls attention to the way that the concept of religion is an artificial unity. It's a false construct uh, in a certain way with little uh, utility as an analytic category. But the problem with the way that that scholarship has been done is it seems to imagine that Europeans are kind of super powerful, that they can kind of just like assert something is the case, and that the rest of the world kind of rolls over and allows the European uh, kind of dominance, uh, intellectual uh, dominance. And instead, in, in this sense, it, it ends up often disempowering some of the very people that it's trying to empower. You would get the sense, for example, from Said that uh, Arab intellectuals had nothing to do with the conversation about how the Orient was constructed or how... and. and what you end up, what I wanted to do then was nuance that and look at the process of discovering religion as an asymmetrical one in which uh, European powers were the dominant uh, force, but in which uh, various uh, indigenous uh, actors could not only respond to and resist European imperatives, but actually transform them or react to them very strategically. To... So I wanted to not just do, you know, um, Europeans constructing Asian religion, but actually look at how. Japanese intellectuals, uh, constructed and encountered and dealt with the European category. So that, you know, makes it one significant, I think, uh, turn, turn different than most of the previous work that had been done. Um, That leaves us kind of with two scholars who had done uh, uh, versions uh, or had worked on this problem significantly. Well, that's not quite true, but a a couple of a few scholars that had worked on the problem uh, significantly. Um, In Japan, uh, there was a long history of thinking about this concept of shukyo. Um, It starts uh, also in the 60s. Uh, with, a Japanese intellectual named, um, Suzuki Norihisa. Um, but, uh, and I'd have to check the dates, but I think that's the, the sixties as well. Um, and kind of, but was done uncritically. This, this kind of scholarship tended to treat the Japanese encounter with shukyo. Uh, okay. I should step back and say shukyo is the translation term that has become s- established, uh, in, since the 1870s for the European religion. Anyway, Japanese intellectuals have been thinking about the Japanese engagement with Shukyo since the 1960s, but kind of uncritically in a positivist sense. It was basically like how Japanese people discovered the concept of religion and discovered the concept of tolerance. That was the dominant narrative uh, that defined the previous intellectual history on the term Shukyo. Um, the significant shift in that regard in Japan uh, was the Japanese thinker, Isomai Junichi, uh, whose work, Kindai Nihon no Shukyo Gensetsu Tosono kefu Keifu of uh, Two thousand and three um, was a real attempt to kind of take a, a, a sort of European critical and genealogical deconstruction uh, of the category of shukyo uh, into play. And I, I found that work very inspirational and very useful when I was writing uh, my material. But um, Isamaya is really concerned with the formation of shukyo-gaku, of Japanese religious studies as an autonomous discipline. And I am less focused on that. And Isa work is also criticized because he doesn't start before the term Shukyo came into play. So uh, he he basically sort of starts from the moment that Shukyo solidifies as a translation term, and then is interested at the parties uh, who are kind of playing with and utilizing that term. And for me, that wasn't sufficient historically. I ended up having to go back into the uh, uh, into the. Um, all the way into the 16th century, uh, to try and figure out well, how were how were Japanese people talking about things like Christianity before they had the term religion or Shukyo available to them? Um, so one thing that this does differently than Isamaya is my is it's much vaster in breadth. And also I kind of mostly stay out of religious studies as a discipline to leave Isamaya some space. Uh, and on a concrete level, uh, at various points in the manuscript, I, I very much disagree with him uh, in the way that he thinks it functions in the, in the larger political state. But if there's any work that's similar to my work, or that's, you know, the work that is probably most similar to my work is Issa Maya's, uh work, um, yeah, on the category. In the West, the other important influence on me uh, was the work of Timothy Fitzgerald, who wrote The Ideology of Religious Studies in 2000. And that came out, um, you know, when I was just starting graduate school, and um And and, and I found it, you know, it's an attempt also to look at how artificially the concept of religion is constructed, but at that time, uh, almost all the early reviews of it were so uniformly negative. Basically, they faulted him for being uh, basically monolingual uh, in in his uh, linguistic ability, focusing... and and directing his attack um, on scholars of the European scholars of the 1960s and later, and both the Japanese reviews and the European reviews uh, of Fitzgerald's work were, were very much a pushback. And so kind of what I wanted to do was provide a vaster sense of source bases that would kind of ask the degree to which uh, religion is an invented category, which Fitzgerald and people have been gesturing at since the 60s, but look at how that actually played out in Japan. And I ended up in a certain sense, having less to say to Fitzgerald than, than, or less space to talk directly to Fitzgerald than I would like, my narrative for how it works and how the term Shukyo functions in Japan ends up looking pretty different, but he's definitely like an ins- influential kind of inspiration behind my project, and I think at the end of the day, uh, I, I validate his larger thesis, or his most important claim uh, a- about the constructed nature of the category, even if I end up disagreeing with him on, on many of the details. Um, and even if I, I just kind of also didn't want to trust his scholarship because it had so been so routinely attacked that I ended up kind of saying, okay, l- let's see what it's actually the case. Let's put this aside for the moment and kind of actually work through the Japanese materials on their own terms. Yeah. So, anyway. Um, and so in the in the beginning of the book, the first few chapters, you, you
1: do this kind of uh, pre-Meiji era. And uh, I'm wondering if you could kind of discuss h- how how religion uh, that we, this concept, concept that we have now, how was it discussed uh, prior to we had this term Shukyo.
0: Yeah, I mean, right. So, um, yeah, I would say I would I would nuance this a little bit different. But I would say, um, how are the things that, that uh, how are the things that we will later decide our religions uh, discussed in the preceding period? Um, and, and basically, you know, there was a Japan's first encounter with European. Intellectuals, or with Europeans uh, in general, uh, began in roughly the mid 16th century. And particularly important for the history of religion uh, was the arrival of Jesuits uh, in the in 1551. Um, and in this period of encounter, what what I try and do is look at Japanese writings about European figures, European Christian figures, and trying to figure out what categories are in play. And, uh, you know, I was just curious to try to figure out, you know, what were the terms that they were using to talk about Christianity? Uh, was there a way to distinguish Christianity from other aspects of European culture? Um, etc. And what I discovered is that Japanese intellectuals put into play uh, an older Buddhist terminology uh, around jakyo, jasetsu, jashuman. These are words that if you had to translate them into English, you would be tempted to call heresy, because they had a long history in East Asian Buddhism to describe deviant or dangerous forms of Buddhism uh, corrupted by demonic influence. So what, what ended up what I ended up discovering, and then and this ended up being borne out through a detailed research of these sort of Japanese ethnographies of, uh, of Europeans uh, from the period, is that they thought of, they slotted Christianity as a subtype of Buddhism, generally. They generally thought of Christianity not as, it's not that Christianity and Buddhism were both members of a larger category that was religion, but instead that Christianity was a subset of Buddhism. It was just a different sect of Buddhism. Um, and the thing that was Most dangerous about it, or the reason that they thought it was demonic and heretical, in good part, was because of what we would now call politics, uh, because of its connection to uh, colonialism, or as they perceived it uh, um, in the 16th century, and its connection to kind of empire. So, uh, in a certain sense, uh, the categories that were ready at hand um, uh, in the first period of encounter were... We're, we're not at all like our current concept of, of religion, um, but emphasized very different aspects of Christianity and what Christianity could do. Um, in the second half of that chapter, I then look at the European thinkers writing about it. When I wrote it the first time and presented it, that was where the narrative stopped. Uh, but then people kept asking me, "Well, what did the Europeans say about the Japanese?" And they had this idea that it was totally silly for the Japanese to talk about Europeans as heretics. In fact, I had a after I gave a version of a talk uh, about this, one of the people in the audience was like, "Oh, the, you know," said something really condescending about how the Japanese uh, must not have had a real concept of heresy, or um, and how they must have just totally been baffled by the strangeness of Europeans, or something. You know, and it simply silly. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, you know. Um, well, what did the European, what did the Jesuits say, or well, what did European uh, explorers and missionaries say in that exact period of time? And then what I discovered is that the language of heresy is very much on the surface, and that uh, at least uh, focusing particularly on Catholic source material, although I, I look a little bit at some Protestant sources. Um, they seem to also use the concept of heresy dominantly to talk about, uh, Buddhism, especially in the early period. And they seem to ju- use, and both Protestant and Catholics seem to use the language of the demonic. Uh, and they also don't have a word for Buddhism in the period. So they don't think of, uh, Buddhism as some subset of the category religion particularly. Instead, uh, what they thought of, uh, in the period was, uh, a kind of either undifferentiated paganism or idolatry uh, or they ended up thinking of it as a, a kind of defective or failed imitation Christianity and therefore heretical and probably inspired by the devil. I mean that's the kind of language that they that they uh, issued in that period. Um, the other thing that plays in here that you, you talk about uh, a little bit later
1: is this idea of Shinto. Um, can you tell us what uh, how Shinto was discussed prior to this Meiji period, and then uh, that transformation during the late nineteenth century of this idea of Shinto.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that uh, that I'm gonna that I argue in the book. Um, is that Shinto is a is another modern invention. It's a Japanese uh, modern invention, not of the 19th century, but basically of the 18th and um, maybe pre-Western encounter, early 19th century. Uh, I'm not the first person to argue this. Uh, there is a history of scholarship uh, in Japan uh, and, and more recently in the U.S. that looks at the construction of... Uh, this category of Shinto as something different than uh, Buddhism uh, within Japan, um, basically, as part of the process of early modernity. Um, the term Shinto, or that reading of the two characters uh, for um, deity or god and way, uh, seems to have been—it's somewhat debated—but but at the very least, uh, probably a 17th-century phenomena. Prior to that. There's an idea that there was a way of the gods, maybe, but it wasn't considered something necessarily separate from Buddhism. Uh, Most of the people in uh, Buddhist, uh, in in these shrines and temples dedicated to local gods, were performing Buddhist rituals, they were performing. offering they're reading buddhist scriptures uh, and performing op- uh, offering rituals often modeled on japanese tantric buddhism for the local and indigenous gods uh and these gods were often described as the emanations uh, of different japanese buddhism bodhisattvas or different i'm sorry universal buddhas or bodhisattvas so there wasn't yet a separate institution for shinto or not much of one uh and there wasn't much of a separate way to think about shinto as anything kind of autonomous um but basically starting in the 16th century I'm Sorry, the 17th century, uh, and then really picking up steam in the late 18th and then early 19th century, uh, Shinto starts to differentiate itself as an institution. And the people who usually uh get credited for some of this conversation about Shinto uh are a group of um Japanese intellectuals uh who call themselves Kokugaksha or at various points. Uh Kokugaksha are um national usually translated as national learning or nativism uh but what i'll provocatively translate in the book as national science um i can say a little bit about that in a few minutes but there basically is an intellectual movement in japan that starts in part out of an engagement with uh, a new piece of chinese evidentiary research um, and partially out of an encounter with european astronomy um that then begins to try and kind of Rethink the cosmos in a new way and to try and recover older historical materials or older historical sources uh, within Japan. And it's these people um, who end up constructing a, a kind of Shinto in the pre modern period and a kind of Shinto that looks like, uh, in some ways, the science. They open uh, academies for kind of Shinto physics and Shinto astronomy uh, and a science in, in terms of like literary studies or a, um, a kind of literaturwissenschaft kind of science. Uh, they uh, like a literary science of philology and philological textual recovery, and then also a kind of politics. Uh, And this is a a Shinto understood as we could almost say a political science. Um, And it's these ways that Shinto was kind of getting constructed before the encounter in the 19th century with the Western category of religion. Uh, And because of that, when Europeans show up in the mid-19th century, um, Japanese intellectuals first don't want to fit uh, Shinto into the category of religion. They think, okay, well, Shinto isn't very much like uh, this – everything you're telling me about uh, private belief, uh, uh, inward uh, and private belief or around uh, a particular god. Um, and it doesn't have – they will argue um, it's not based on faith. Uh, it's based – they'll argue it's based on facts and empirical evidence. And so they initially try and slot Shinto into the realm of politics or uh, science. Uh, both physical sciences and kind of scholastic or literary sciences, humanities, what we might say. Uh, and that position is kind of maintained and becomes official Japanese government policy uh, in the 1870s, uh, and then is a really challenged a couple of times, but o- overturned uh, only when the Allies show up in, in uh, 1945. And uh, uh, we end up insisting that uh, Japanese. Um, Shinto is really a religion and therefore needs to be separate from the state. So I guess to to recap, what I end up showing is Shinto is a modern invention, but a modern invention that occurs through an encounter with European uh, astronomical and scientific and materials and uh, indigenous forms of learning, uh, and only then has an uneasy relationship to category religion, such that throughout the 19th century, Japanese intellectuals by and large, insist that Shinto doesn't fit in the category religion. Um, maybe because it's something like politics. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, and this this fits into what you call the Shinto secular. Can you can you flesh that out a little bit?
0: Yeah, I end up. Um, so there's been this shift in the study of secularization theory um, in. Uh, The the heyday of secularization theory, which really, interestingly enough, begins almost with the birth of religious studies as a discipline, but you can think of religious studies in general as trying to deal with the death of God almost from the very beginning and a kind of disenchantment of the world. Anyway, early secularization theory had this idea that um, there was a rigorous distinction between the secular and the religious, and that the secular, over time, the secular was going to win. Uh, as part of the world modernized, uh, everything was going to get more and more secular, uh, that the secular was a kind of value-neutral position, and that ultimately religion vanished. So it ties up to a kind of a thesis of disenchantment. Um, and. So, But that concept of the secular or secularization ha, uh, was challenged significantly by a range of folks, but particularly importantly, uh, Talal Assad, who ended up showing that the concept of the secular and secularism were heavily entangled with the concept of religion and particularly Protestant presuppositions. That's um, that's Assad's argument. But anyway, Protestant presuppositions about what religion should be and how religion should be uh, in the private sphere uh, instead of the public sphere and how it's a kind of inward belief. Belief And how the idea is that religion can be rigorously separated from politics. Politics dwells in the realm of the secular, basically, or should dwell in the realm of the secular. And religion is something that should should happen in the home. Um, And what these what scholars uh, allowed it to show was that the globalization of the concept of the secular was part of a European project um, and fit certain kinds of agendas. Um, I end up kind of coming in and complicating that picture a little bit in regard to Japan, because what it what basically what happened in japan Um, is that Japanese intellectuals encountering this concept of a a, a secular, if you will, thought that they could plug Shinto into the equation, and they plugged it into the equation in a very different place than we would imagine. They didn't say, oh, Shinto is a private matter of inward belief. Uh, Instead, they ended up saying Shinto is a kind of public foundation of politics and government, uh, totally in conformity with science and the rules of the nation, uh, and therefore it belongs on the side of the secular, basically. And so this causes us to have to rethink uh, the concept of the secular – uh, in, in different ways. Um, but it basically shows that, uh, that we, in certain ways, have a multiplicity of, of possible seculars. Um, or, put differently, that resistance to European hegemonic domination doesn't just take the form of like fundamentalist religion, uh, so-called, uh, but can also take the form of uh, a, a formulation of one's own discourse of secularism through which the Japanese were capable of rendering European thought relativist and fitting European thought into the category of religion religion and therefore disenchanting it um, i don't know i might have been going a little fast there I'm, I'm sorry. no no this is
1: this is great this is great i mean there's there's so much in your book that uh we almost need to move quickly um where does uh where does superstition fit into this puzzle and maybe maybe you could uh, just briefly give us a, a a look at what the supernatural looks like in, in japan
0: okay um so I think one of my book's biggest interventions is into this question about what other entangled concepts are related to religion. Um as people like um you know Talala Talal Assad Uh, and uh, 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 Timothy Fitzgerald and others have already argued for the way in which uh, concepts of religion and the secular are entangled uh, with each other. Uh, A different set of scholars, and I'm thinking in particular of Serge Mergal in France, uh, has written a whole book, uh, Superstition, uh, where he argues for the um, importance of the category superstition in defining the concept uh, of religion, uh, so so in a certain sense – and then there's a third trajectory in which a lot of scholars doing science studies, which is another discipline that I, I, I read, uh, have been interested in the way that science defines itself in opposition to religion uh, or science defines itself uh, in opposition to the concept of superstition. But in, in almost every case uh, in the past, any given scholar is going to focus only on a binary operation. They think of religion as uh, either opposed to science or uh, su- science is opposed to superstition, um, or religion is opposed to the secular. And what I'm really trying to argue in this book is that what is actually happening in modernity and the differentiation process of modernity is, a, is generally a trinary operation in which um, religion uh, is opposed on one hand to superstition and on the other hand to science, and at the same time, science, sometimes often identified with the secular, uh, is opposed to superstition. Uh, and so uh, it's a little bit hard to to describe this verbally, but what I see is a kind of a triadic operation in which religion is often the uh, excluded middle between the secular or the, the real or the rational or the scientific and this concept of superstition. Uh, religion is a thing that is sometimes not superstition or sometimes all superstition um, and so the concept of superstition becomes incredibly important to the rise of modernity, and you know there's evidence for this all the way back to the um, Enlightenment. Uh, Kant famously describes the Aufklärung uh, as built in opposition to uh, uh, to superstition. Uh, we find this in the French um, philosophers, uh, and basically there's this there's this argument that uh, in order for modernity to progress pro- pro- to unfold, um, it needs to uh, oppose and eliminate something called superstition. So that might lead you to believe if you're critical like me and you don't take categories very seriously, especially when they're supposed to be universal, what do people have in mind when they're talking about superstition? And First, what you discover in the West is that the term superstition comes into significant European usage, uh both with the Protestant Reformation and with witchcraft trials. Uh and its main association is the demonic, and it's profoundly connected to the concepts of magic. So when people uh in uh the you know 16th century are refer to the witches as superstitious, the witches are superstitious, um, not because they're not powerful or because their magic doesn't work but because they're deluded as to the source of their power so the 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 devil gives and spreads superstitions, and we see this in anthropological literature from the period of Jose de Acosta, for example, who writes about the the, diabol- the superstitions of the devil has spread throughout the New World. So you get the idea that superstition is misdirected belief, uh, it's dark, it's demonic, and its main opposition in this early formulation is against the concept of true religion or true Christianity. And it's only with uh, the scientific revolution that people like uh, Francis Bacon repurpose the, the, uh, anti-Catholic critique, uh, and they make it into a, uh, an anti-Catholic critique of superstition, and they put it in the service of science. So they end up claiming that uh, superstition isn't false belief uh, spread by the devil, but actually is just any kind of generic false belief, um, and then which they distinguish from the true belief or true faith of religion. So they're guarding a limited space for religion, but thinking of superstition as any imitation of science or any false belief or... Um, And often the interesting thing in the European case is that it's the legacy of older categories. So witches used to be – witchcraft used to be considered superstitious because it was powered by the devil. Then sort of roughly – eventually after the scientific revolution, witchcraft is considered superstition because it's not powered by the devil because it has no power behind it. So – Looking at that terminology uh, in the European material, we can see there's an interesting uh, movement that happens in Japan uh, in the course of the 19th century. There's an older terminology about the demonic – some of that is about the heretical, uh, and using this character jaw, but some of it is about, um, Inshi uses a kind of term of licentiousness or licentious cults. Uh, some of it is just literally discussions of black magic. Um, there are a set of categories that this is fit under, but they all generally have to do with the demonic and it's not the supernatural as such, but it's only the demonic part of the supernatural that it singles out. And it, this language tends to single out that demonic as deceptive, but not necessarily but not non-existent or you know this stuff is real but it has illusion built into it so you know witches use their magical powers to delude people there's a similar argument is made in japan um uh, about these kind of dark Practitioners of dark magics. Uh, And what happens in the 19th century uh, is that a new term is coined to describe and translate the European superstition. Uh, Actually, it's probably making its way through uh, the German uh, or the Dutch, but anyway, in Japanese it becomes uh, meshin, um, uh, errant or aberrant belief. Uh, and this, there's a sh- significant shift of valence. The primary target of Meishin, of superstition, uh, which becomes an important term in Japanese policy, basically, legal policy, as well as a bunch of other texts, the primary attack is also on the demonic. It's on the same kinds of evil supernatural beings that uh, were considered bad and harmful in the preceding period. But now it starts to function as a disenchanting term. So the movement... Uh, is in parallel to the West, and it's not accidental they're reading European intellectuals uh, about European concepts of superstition. So um, I'm not describing a necessary parallel movement of modernity so much as a dialogue or a direct influence, where they start to carve out a certain sphere and designate it as the superstitious, a kind of the supernatural that doesn't function uh, and that can't exist. And increasingly, they develop in in this a a new version of the supernatural uh, in which what it counts or what it means to be supernatural is to violate scientific law. rather than to act in unexpected or unusual ways and increasingly the argument becomes that it's very hard or it's very unusual for things to violate scientific laws Um, and anybody who claims that they are I don't know magically healing you are likely superstitious or deluding you in some way or another. So you can see how it's connected to the rise of scientific authority in Japan. Uh, but the interesting thing are the spheres that it also preserves. So it preserves both the sphere of the religious as something that are the things that you can believe in, but you shouldn't believe in if you think that they affect the world too much. Uh, if you believe in the Buddhas as something that is in your heart or somewhere up in, in the sky or in a pure land in a distant Western paradise, then that's not superstitious. But if you believe that the Buddha moved Moves the rock uh, across the street, then that suddenly counts as superstitious belief. The other area that's bracketed out are the Shinto gods, who are sometimes described as regulating science or being behind science uh, or uh, reinforcing scientific laws. Um, And finally, there's this weird loophole or interesting issue around ghosts who the Japanese government in an early uh, case describes as dangerous superstitions. It's superstitious to believe in ghosts, Uh, but then it changes its mind about that and then it drops ghosts off that list. And you might want to ask, why did ghosts, why were ghosts superstitious in, say, 1870, but not considered superstitious in, uh, you know, 1890 or 1910? And the answer to that has to do with the rise of spiritualism as a global phenomena. And one of the things that the, one, another take home message that people not in Japanese studies, uh, might want to note is that it it looks like, uh, not only is spiritualism probably the largest uh... religious movement in the west in the nineteenth century but in certain ways it has a massive influence in other parts of the non-european uh... world um, you know including you know south asia and east asia so we see in japan the the, the basically parapsychology and disciplines like the british society or institutions like the british society for psychical research leave the japanese government in a non-place where they think perhaps ghosts might be a reality uh, and this also fits in with uh, a Japanese government's attempt to promote the idea that the that people who are martyred in the service of the Japanese nation, their spirits kind of dwell on or live on at certain memorial sites, uh, particularly places like the Yasukuni Jinja or the the, the um, Nation Pacifying Shrine. So you get this idea that there are that Japan is haunted, but that haunting is directly a product of modernity as well because it starts to take up older categories, ghosts. Things get described as ghosts or spirits that a hundred years earlier were described as demons or as actually kinds of animals, things that were really supposed to like be just a kind of creature that lived in the woods, uh, now are increasingly understood in terms of the language of spirits and ghosts. So the process of modernity then tends to look less like di- disenchantment than a kind of standardization as local categories are fit uh, increasingly into global uh, categories. Um, so anyway, that's part of that superstition. Um,
1: one of the, uh, the things that I think uh, is is very important about this book just for the field in general is uh you you move beyond um the the category of religion um and you designate it as a diplomatic category um i think this is an important shift um we kind of skipped over why the japanese were even discussing what a religion is so maybe you could uh fit that into uh, this idea of the category of religion as a diplomatic category?
0: Yeah, so what I end up showing is that uh, a couple of things that um, scholars have tended to look, those scholars interested in uh, looking at the European construction of the category of religion, they have tended to look at the writings of other scholars. There's a way in which um, this deconstruction of the category is and first and foremost studies as auto-critique. Scholars writing about scholars of the past. And what that would legacy that that tends to have is that you would think that it's scholars who are coming to define religion so importantly and so centrally uh in the world not just in europe but in in the whole globe but it doesn't give much of a mechanism for enforcement it doesn't give much stake and you know as much as we like to imagine that we have a voice in the larger world it often turns out the case that, that that scholarly categories are very late in percolating through the culture or having any impact uh on the culture at large something that does make a concrete difference in people's lives is law codes um and, uh, this was something, so I had a conversation, uh, with Jacques Derrida when I was starting my project, and he, he gave me one really piece of advice. He, he didn't have that much to say about, about my project, but, but the one piece of advice he really gave me was, you know, look to law codes because that's where people are forced to kind of instantiate their metaphysical presuppositions in one way or another. And so I started looking at law codes, uh, both in Japan and then in Europe, and I discovered that uh, not only does religion play a huge role in Japanese law and European law, and not only there are huge debates about how to define religion pragmatically in legal terms, but also religion turns out to be a significant diplomatic category. And so the way that Japan has to, the thing that forces Japan to grapple uh, with the concept of religion is not like a journal that somebody sends them or a European intellectual that gives a lecture or something like that, but the pragmatic force of diplomatic politics. And to say a little bit about how this happens, uh, in starting really um, in 1853 but gaining picking up steam in uh, 1858, a bunch of European powers show up in Japan uh, and they start forcing or demanding that the Japanese government sign a bunch of trade treaties. Uh, but the European powers may be... Pr- Primarily interested in trade, uh, but they are also interested in proselytization. Um, Normally, if you read a normative account of the diplomatic history of the period, you only get the idea of trade. But I think that's a a modern – that's an anachronism. I think in that period, uh, looking at the diaries of the people involved, for example, and looking at their diplomatic correspondences, they're justifying what they're doing often in terms of mission. And so, uh, what you note is that the Europeans are interested in promoting Christianity in Japan. And given that in that time, Christianity was illegal, you couldn't be a practicing Christian in Japan. Uh, it was thought of as basically like a dangerous heresy, uh, uh, politically connected to European powers and that it would, that it would lead toward colonial domination basically. So the Japanese, uh, kept it out. Um, And it was illegal to be a Christian in Japan, and the European powers were really interested in asserting the freedom of religion as a basically universal human right. Uh, But they were using that as kind of a code because they wanted to get missionaries in Japan. They wanted to Christianize Japan. And so one sees in these trade treaties odd lines about freedom of religion, and they start with a Japanese-Dutch treaty, but they uh, work their way into uh, treaties with the U.S. uh, and with – you know, the full full range of European powers, the Prussia, uh, Russia. So they end up, but the interesting thing about treaties, and this is the other place that it, so Japanese translators see this word Religion, for example, in English, and as they're, they don't know what it means, there's not a term for religion in Japanese, or at least no clear-cut translation term. And so, and it's very, very important to, them to figure out what is it that the European powers are insisting on. What is this that they're supposed to be guaranteeing freedom of? Um, and I think that moment is the really important one for the formation of the Japanese uh, concept, or invention, or construction of religion. This uh, this form of, of diplomatic exchange, and the feature of it being diplomatic is that that also means it's a category subject to negotiation. So the Japanese don't just passively accept European categories, but even though they know they're on the losing side, they hedge it. They add in qualifications. They try and define or nuance it in very particular ways. Um, And that changes the narrative, too, and I think that gives us a sense of something about the global category, too, the way that it's a negotiated category, that it's a product of asymmetries of power, and that it's born in these diplomatic arenas where something is really at stake. Uh, scholars, both in Japan and in Europe, react to those diplomatic categories, are inspired by those debates, and they're not unconnected from them, but the diplomatic debates are really front and center um, in the formation of the category, both in the West, actually, uh, and in Japan
1: what uh so could you could you discuss some of these terms that they used
0: yeah um there's a there's okay so the the one that stabilizes out is um shukyo but that's probably in some ways the least important of them I mean in a, I would argue that they they off, they use that term uh in part because it's a pretty empty I mean those two characters that occurred together a few times in reference to textualized Buddhist traditions the characters of sect and teachings but basically uh that terminology wasn't present for most of the people trying to think about how to translate the concept of religion. Um, they, In fact, in the diplomatic treaties, the old diplomatic treaties, that term doesn't occur. That's not the term that they use. Um, they use other terms. Uh, one of them is shuho, which we could translate as um, sect law. Um, they Well, let me, I mean, I I guess I can give you a a little bit more of an efficient rundown. Um, So first, you know, one possibility is to use the term Shinto to translate what we now translate as religion. That is floated by uh, a couple of significant Japanese intellectuals. That makes Shinto the uber category uh, of which the things we think of as Christianity, Buddhism, etc., Different types of Shinto. This is, this would be, have been, nobody really seems to have taken off on this, although a couple of people, Japanese intellectuals floated it. This would be very interesting because it would connect, it would kind of imagine that each people had its own gods and all those gods were equally valid, or perhaps each people had its own politics and all of it, and there was a, you know, connecting it very closely to nation state. Anyway, that's a, an interesting possibility. Uh, another possibility that they floated a translation term was Hokyo, which, uh, law teachings, um this um this was a kind of very different um, kind of <sighs> The freedom, in the, the freedom of this would have meant freedom in the face of the uh, established law and established teachings. Um, it would have meant a kind of um, that schools could have been organized to include this kind of standardized national teachings, but then anything that didn't fit within a certain set of national parameters wouldn't fit it. This is a way to emphasize kind of the public quality of it. It's kind of like here's the law and here are the justifications for that law. Um, there are other terms. Kyoman is another one. Um... um Shukyo is the one that picks up in scholarly terms, but interestingly enough, Shukyo isn't the translation term in the main diplomatic treaties, and when Japanese uh, government guarantees freedom of religion, they also don't use the word Shukyo, they use a term Shinkyo, so they substitute the word sect and they put this term Shin or belief in there, so Shinkyo uh, is a kind of freedom of internal and private belief, Uh, not sect belief, but individual belief, Um, so I mean, that, that, I haven't even covered the full scope of the possible terms that are in play, but they they cover the whole spectrum from something like you could imagine. Uh, um, uh, th- there's another translation term, for example, floated by uh, a, a, a Japanese uh, intellectual named Nishimane. He uses the term kyoman. It's an older Buddhist term, but what he argues about it is that it's things for which you have scientific reason to believe, kind of, in a certain way. So, you know, you can imagine that, like... European terms: science, politics, uh, superstition, religion. All of those had were in, had sort of overlapping uh, meaning in the period. Morality, ethics, all of these things, uh, philosophy, uh, were all woven up. And the the term that they come to translate uh, as religion ends up stabilizing some of those meanings and authorizing some of them and not others. So, I mean, Japanese intellectuals just aren't really sure what this word religion means, because it means so many different and contradictory things, and because it's when they, if they, when they looked it up in the European dictionaries of the period, they would have found or, or and I know that they did, um, they, they found things like the way of each people worshipping God, and Japanese people at that time, uh, it was illegal to worship God, so uh, maybe what all the Europeans wanted to do was promulgate a kind of heresy, you know, so... It wasn't obvious how to translate the word, and it also wasn't obvious what in Japan fit into that category. Was Shinto a religion? Basically, a range of Japanese intellectuals said no, or that they said at least most of Shinto was not a religion. Was Confucianism a religion? Ah, They end up arguing, no, it's not really a religion. Was Buddhism a religion? They argue back and forth. Maybe Buddhism is a religion. Maybe it's a science. Maybe it's superstition. At the end of the day, some Japanese intellectuals argue that Buddhism is a religion. You know, so like all these things are in play. It's not it's not clear what the term religion is. And it's not clear what the members of religion or what the Japanese religions might be. And that period of tension is like a thirty-year process, basically, uh, of debating the meaning of religion. Although the debate of it happens in basically more like twenty years, let's say, uh, eighteen fifty-eight to, to, to um, well, eighteen fifty-eight to eighteen eighty-nine, so thirty years. Yeah, roughly thirty-one years. Uh, a period of kind of debating and arguing about how to translate religion and what is it that the Europeans are talking about when they're talking about religion. And they discover basically that it's an inconsistent category. So anyway, I trace all that in the book uh, in one way or another. Um. Once, so once we have this uh,
1: this legal definition of what religion is, you you kind of talk a little bit about uh, very briefly kind of religious studies as a ja- Japanese discipline. Can you just kind of give us a brief look at that? What what that looked like?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, there's some interesting things about that. Uh, so, um, so one of the key pioneers of religious studies, um, Onesaki, um Well, let me take a step back. So what ends up happening shortly after the Japanese government uh, instantiates a kind of freedom of religion um, as... uh a, a kind of legal standard is that then Japanese intellectuals with a very different set of problems at stake, try and figure out um, what is it, what is religion really like what do people really mean? Uh, what did the Japanese state really mean, um, and what does it mean kind of anthropologically as a category so it moves in a certain dimension from being a pragmatic internal term to being something that they 're starting to look out and, and experience different parts of the world um, and again and so any so Japanese intellectuals then formulate a discipline of religious studies. And Anasaka uh, Masaharu is the, is the significant figure around which this new discipline of Gaku coalesces. And what's interesting is that because of the legacy of this historical encounter, Japanese religious studies departments are some of the earliest religious studies departments in the world. Uh, and Japanese intellectuals start intervening in the global conversation about what counts as a religion and what doesn't. Um, they, They start um, sending emissaries and representatives to international conferences and they start trying to figure out – they start taking as a given some of the European terms for religion but trying to figure out how others of them work. Um, What to say more concretely about it as a discipline? What one learns is that the concept of religion uh, as articulated by Japanese intellectuals can both be a way to resist colonialism – and a way to impose uh, colonialism. It can be a way, so on the one hand, uh, Japanese intellectuals get to use the category of religion to argue that Buddhism was valuable uh, and something worth studying, and that Japanese Buddhism in particular counted as a legitimate form of Buddhism, which was totally up for grabs in the mid-19th century world, especially with British scholars thinking that uh, Pali Buddhism and early textual Buddhism was the only authentic Buddhism, and that East Asian Buddhism was just a superstitious imitation or something. Anyway, the category of religion in the birth of religious studies let Japanese Buddhist intellectuals defend the credibility uh, of the category of Buddhism. And as no accident that Anasaki was a Nichiren Buddhist, Um, but it also allowed them to assert that things were religions and not religions in the Japanese colonial project. So sadly, you know, when Japanese colonialism got got going in korea they started defining some things as legitimate religions and not legitimate religions uh, and religious studies was actively japanese religious studies was actively complicit in that process so uh, they ended up deciding that certain forms of korean shamanism for example were superstitions or uh, or uh, imitation religions or inauthentic and therefore didn't deserve protection from freedom of religion um so anyway you end up with those two sides uh of it well, JJ, uh, obviously there was a
1: lot more to to be discussed from the book, and I'm sorry we couldn't go into the the great detail you you explain all this in. Um, but before I let you go, can you kind of uh,
0: let us know what you're working on now, and what we might see from you in the future? Sure. Um, so I've got two ongoing projects. The first of which is a is basically kind of a should be a very um, short sequel uh, to this one. Um, that's, uh, um, one of the things I argue is that the formation of a religion is not merely the matter of a discourse, but is actually like the linking up and construction of concrete and transnational institutions. So Buddhism doesn't just become a religion because it's labeled a religion, but it actually is part of a process of standardization and homogenization and institutional shifts. Um, and I have one project that traces that basically, it looks at European discourse around Buddhism, it argues, uh, and then connects it up with Japanese it talks about first Europeans who have the concept of religion at hand, but don't have the term Buddhism yet, and how they encounter Buddhism, and then how they try and fit Buddhism once they have it as a term into the category religion. And And it also traces Japanese intellectuals who thought of themselves as Buddhists and but don't have the term religion, and how they encounter the category religion, and it looks at the knitting together of a global Buddhism as a kind of religious institution. That project is a short book. It's mostly, I would say, mostly done in its first draft, uh, well, or at least uh, some number of months from having a first draft. The project I'm kind of more throwing myself into at the moment um, is a project I'm calling Absolute Disruption. Um, And it's inspired by a a conversation I had, um, a couple of conversations I had Uh, One of which uh, was in Vienna, where a buddy of mine is asking me, well, you know, now that you've deconstructed the category religion, like, you know, or or, and what are you going to do next? Um, And and, and this was related to another conversation I had with some friends in New Haven, where they said to me, you know, okay, you've done genealogy. um, You know, that's kind of the ultimate postmodern project. Uh, What happens What do you think is going to happen next? Is there anything after postmodernism or are we stuck in postmodernism? So my reaction to that is a project I'm working on now called um, absolute uh, disruption, uh, the disintegration of the object and the future of religious studies. And it's a kind of an attempt to take both of those things seriously, to, to kind of ask, what do we do in religious studies after having deconstructed the category of religion? And also to address... Uh, this question about postmodernity, like, is there something after postmodernity? What does it look like? How do we pass the postmodern uh, moment? And so what I'm kind of trying to do is um, kind of pivot on on the postmodern deconstruction and figure out what if what would it look like to build a discipline of religious studies or a scholarly inquiry of religious studies around the lack uh, around the idea that religion is not a universal, uh, but that it has a particularly constructed history, and I think that this is relevant not just to the field of religious studies uh, at large, but to postmodernism because there's a way in which the one can think of the problem of postmodernism um, uh, as. Uh, the problem of relativism, in one way or another. I mean, this is sort of like a, a very babyish, summary a way to look at it. But, but for the, but only to have a couple minutes to tell it to you, I'll just put it this way: you can think of, of um, postmodernism as a process through which everything gets to count as a religion. In other words, everything becomes a matter of private belief, and it it's all subjective. This is one meaning of the term religion uh, uh, that that people have in play. So people, you know, get end up deciding that global global warming is just just a matter of faith, or a personal belief, or they end up deciding that um, the there's no pri- privileged position uh, from which to interpret a text, or anyway, so. That looks like, in some ways, the, the global transformation of everything, systems of knowledge, uh, into the category religion. But ironically, this is the same moment while the discipline of religious studies is disintegrating the concept of religion. So on the one hand, we have people like in science studies who are saying things like, wow, uh, in the 90s they were saying things like, wow, science in some ways doesn't look very different from religion. Science is just a matter of a f- set of presuppositions of faith, of um, uh, and uh, of an inward belief or something at the very moment when religious studies are saying there's no such universal thing as a kind of inward belief or it's not universal uh, that this kind of relativism is a modern construction so I'm trying to run these two things together and try and see if I can find my way out of or past or work through postmodernity modernity uh, and try and figure out what we can do as a field uh, after having deconstructed the concept of religion itself
1: uh, well, JJ, I might uh, have to call you back in a couple of years to, to discuss that project as well. That sounds great. Um, thanks again for making the time, and uh, I highly recommend this book, The Invention of Religion in Japan, and thank you for, for talking with me, JJ. Thank you for having me, and uh, to the listeners, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. That was my conversation with Jason Ananda Josephson about The Invention of Religion in Japan published through University of Chicago Press in 2012.